Well, I appreciate uh, all the prayers of those who knew what was going on the last few days, and uh, we are in a good good hands because it's the Lord that is our safety and our strength and our encouragement, and so we look to Him for help. So let's bow and ask Him to undergird his servant as well as all of us as we seek to hear and apply and incorporate the word of God in our lives. Our Father in heaven, indeed, we depend upon you. With you. Without you, we can do nothing. And especially as we hear the word of God and as we preach the word of God, we need your spirit's help. We come uh, not in our own strength, but we come in the strength of you. And we come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would hear our cries. Please help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our subject matter today is uh, love to God. And uh, we've been going through this book, which I highly recommend, The Distinguishing Traits of Christian Character. Again, this is a an old book, so the cover is different nowadays, uh, but we've preached a couple sermons on this book, uh, and so far, um, well, it's written by Gardner Spring, and Gardner Spring was a pastor of the Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City for 63 years, from 1810 to 1873. And the truths that he laid out in this book are, are precious and needful in our day, just as they were back then. So in this book, Spring lists several false hopes that people put their trust in for assurance that they're saved. And then, and that we covered that, uh, briefly, yes, but we did cover that. And then he presents evidences or traits of a genuine Christian. The character trait that we'll be studying is love to God. So I just want to read one thing that, uh, and this is the first uh, trait that Spring focuses on, and he says, uh, satisfactory evidences of the new birth is now our purpose to enter. Among the most convincing of these is love to God. The man who possesses this sublime affection has reason to believe that his character differs from what it was by nature, for the carnal mind is enmity against God. Romans 8, 7. Well, as we begin our study, uh, let's identify the scriptural tie between love to God and true Christianity. Is what he's proposing true? Is there a tie, a connection between love to God and true Christianity? Well, turn, if you would, to James, James chapter 1. Here in James, he's speaking of the rich man who is going to pass away in all his pursuits. And then in contrast to that, in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised 
to those who love him. So you see in this verse, there's a clear connection between those who will receive the crown of life, which are all Christians, and those who truly love God. The characteristic of those who receive the crown of life is love to God. Psalm 145 verse 20 says, The Lord keeps all those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So in that verse we see a contrast between the Lord who uh, keeps all those who love him, those who love him, and the wicked. So there's two groups. There's those who are the wicked and those who love God. That's what he's saying. And then a most familiar verse, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. To who? To those who love God. To those, those who are called according to his purpose. And then he describes those who love God. For those whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So who are the glorified saints? Those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, who are justified. They're all one group. So love to God is not a trait for those who are super spiritual Christians. It's not an optional thing that it's nice to have, but if I don't have it, well, no big deal. No, just the opposite. Love is necessary if we want to call ourselves Christian. Love to God is necessary if we want to call ourselves Christians. Well, the next uh, main heading, as you can see in, in the uh, handout, is definition of love to God, of love rather, definition of love. Now, uh, back many years ago, many moons ago, back at the old building in Delaware Avenue, I actually did a study on love. And uh, so some of this is review for those who were there back then, but it was so long ago, I'm not sure if you remember anything I said. <laughs> but in any case, um, we're going to review this, and so I'm looking and focusing on a definition of love. The Bible doesn't formally define love. It describes love in many of its aspects. Uh, the most commonly used word for love in the New Testament is the word agape. You may be familiar with that. Agape. Thayer's Greek lexicon uh, describes agape as love or affectionate reverence or goodwill or benevolence. So the definition of agape love uh, that I propose is a heart affection that leads to a committed giving of ourselves to the object of our love. Heart affection that leads to a committed giving of ourselves to the object of our love. And back at the beginning when I first developed this, I used Jonathan Edwards as well as John MacArthur and Pastor Hill played a role in this as well. So uh, I'm kind of melding all these ideas and of course seeking to describe what the scriptures define as love through, their, uh, through the various texts. Well, two aspects of love in this definition include, first of all, a heart affection. So that's one of the main areas that we're focusing on here. Heart affection is at the root of love. So in other words, love is not a cold, heartless act of benevolence. But it's that which proceeds out of the heart. There's a connection 
in love, between what we do and what we are inside. Biblical love has the heart involved. Now, what's the biblical evidence for this? Well, if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 2, we'll see a verse that is uh, struck me and... Colossians chapter 2, he's referring to the brethren in Laodicea, and then he says in this one verse, that their hearts may be encouraged or comforted, having been knit together in love, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. So you can see here how the heart is involved in love. And he's talking about their love for one another and that their hearts would be knit together. The hearts would be knit together in love. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently love one another. Some translations say a clean heart. Um, Older manuscripts say that. But the, the basic idea is there. Is that there's a connection between love and the heart. The heart must be involved in love. Paul says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. Love from a pure heart. And then in the Old Testament we see the same Trends, Deuteronomy 10.15, Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. So here the Lord himself sets his affection on his people to love them. And then, of course, you might be familiar with that phrase that the Apostle John used in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John 19.26. I don't think John here is describing this Love that Jesus had for him primarily is benevolent giving, although that certainly was involved. But he's describing Jesus' heart affection for John. It's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a special heart affection for John. Now, of course, an application for this is in Ephesians 5.25, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Would our wife be happy with love without affection? I ask you, would, would our wife be happy with love of, without affection? If we just said, well, I bought you a popcorn maker for our anniversary, what else do you want? I did that once, by the way, <laughs> back in the old days. <clears throat> no, she's not just satisfied with gifts given to her or things done for her. No, she wants our hearts and, and if we don't have heart for one another in our marriage, our marriage is going to be hurting. So while it does wane because of sin and all that, and we'll get to that, yet there's a connection between a heart of a husband and a heart of a wife that has to be there to some degree. And the same with a heart for God, and we'll get to that. Well, the second aspect of the definition is, is the idea of giving of ourselves to the objects of our love. Giving of ourselves to the objects of our love. 
Heart affection is the fountain out of which flows patience and kindness and benevolence. And our whole being is given over to that object of our love. We give ourselves to the object of our love. And the great example we have is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He had a heart for the church and then gave himself for it. Right? So Christ didn't merely just say he loved the church. He did something about it. He was willing to sacrifice and lay down his entire life for the church. So it was an empty action. It wasn't just empty words. He laid down his life for the church. God himself, for God so loved the world. He had a love for the world that he gave his only begotten son. What a sacrifice that was. But you see, it's action that's built upon the heart affection for that world that he, it says he loved. So, in other words, biblical love is intimately tied to action. If we have a true heart affection for someone, we'll want to commit ourselves to that person. Whatever will help them or benefit them spiritually or physically, or please them with that in mind. This, of course, even applies to our love for our children, right? We want to give our hearts to our children and we want to show them that we love them we want to show affection for them but it also may mean that we might have to discipline them and that's love the bible does tell us he who loves his son disciplines him diligently but that's a last resort but we do want you know sometimes love is hard But it's still the idea is that we're doing what's best for him. He needs to be disciplined or else there could be consequences in his older years. But we always bathe it with heart affection. Our actions towards someone will prove our heart affection over time. It's not enough just to say that we love somebody. It has to be proven. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So that's 1 John 3.17. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in needs and says, oh, be filled, be warmed. No, if we truly love him, we're going to help him out. We're going to help him out. Now, it's not always the best thing to give money to people who are down and out. Uh, we have to find out where they're going to spend it. Um, and our, our church's policy is that if we see uh, people coming in off the street who say they have a need, that we don't give them money, but we'll be glad to give them. We don't want to just say be warmed and be filled, but we will offer them a meal. Let's go down to the Chinese restaurant down the street and we'll get a meal. And we've done that in the past. The idea is that we do love that person coming in off the street and Christians need to love everybody. That's the the unique characteristic of the Christian. He doesn't just love uh, his mother. Unbelievers, Jesus said, does do that. They love their own. But we need to love everybody. 
So in other words, let us not love with word and tongue, but in deed and truth. So that's the second aspect of love. Not only heart affection, but that heart affection which leads to a giving of ourselves to that object of our affection. Well, that brings us now to a description of love to God. Let's take now our, our definition of love and the things that we've said about that, and now we apply it to love for God. So there's two aspects, not surprisingly, of our love to God, and the first is heart affection. Heart affection is at the root of love to God. As you recall, the scribe asked Jesus about the greatest commandment of all. And what what does Jesus say is the great commandment? The greatest of all commandments, what did he say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. To love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is what he says. And then the scribe responded, and to love him with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus told him, hey, look it, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So the idea is that love to God is in the heart. So as we apply this, we can ask the question, is God pleased with our worship if we coldly mouth words as we sing and as we pray? Well, we have the answer to that because Jesus gave it in Matthew 15 when he was speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew 15, 8. Instead, we ought to do as the Apostle Paul encourages us to do, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So as we engage in worship, as we sing hymns, as we pray, as we meditate on the word, we do it with a heart towards God. This is what love of God, the love for God is all about. Now if you would turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. This is a text actually that uh, we preached uh, the year before COVID. <laughs> Luke chapter 7, but I'm just going to briefly refer to it here. And this is the account of the woman of sin who goes to the Pharisee's house. And the Pharisee had invited Jesus there. So as it was often the case back then, uh, the doors were apparently open and some could just show up and, and join them. And so this woman did that, despite the fact that she was a noted sinner. And we don't know what the sin is exactly. We can only imagine. But in any case, in verse 37, it says, And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, or of nard, and anti- anyway. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Then in verse 47, 
For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. And he's referring back to the situation where, where she's weeping over his feet. Well, note the visible connection or expression of heart overflowing with love and gratitude by this woman. She's weeping over Jesus because that she had been forgiven. That's what it says in verse 47. For she loved much. Um, for she, It says, with her sins which are many have been forgiven. So apparently she was converted even before she got there. And so she had been forgiven of her sins. She finds out Jesus is the one who forgave her is going to this Pharisee's house. So she shows up to the Pharisee's house and then she sees him and immediately breaks down and starts to cry. Crying for joy. Crying with thankfulness. Her tears dripping onto his feet and then he's, she's wiping his feet with her hair. Now, it wasn't so much the tears. So it's not just, well, everybody who cries, I guess, uh, is he's the one who loves God. No, onions aren't the secret. No. No, this, it's not the tears. It's the heart that produced the tears here that, that uh, the Lord is pointing out. Her love for Christ was the result of her being forgiven. Well, the love of God is the first and highest affection of the renovated heart, says Spring. True love for God is the reigning affection of the heart. Again, Spring says this. This is seen also in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So you can see in that psalm how there's this heart affection going out for God. And that this uh, heart is beating for the Lord. And the soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Note the heart, inward heart affection of the psalmist. And this is at the root of loving God. But then again, as we look at the second main aspect of love for God, in light of the definition of love, love to God will lead to a committed giving of ourselves to God. The second part of this definition, as we have read the scriptures, is that we give ourselves to the object of our love. The object of our love in this case is God himself. So this means in part keeping his commandments. You might say, well, I don't get the connection between love giving ourselves to God and keeping his commandments. Well, if we have a true heart affection for God, we will commit ourselves to doing anything for him. Anything for him in his kingdom. We're so grateful. We're so thankful. We so love him. We so adore him. I'll do anything for him. Lord, whatever you would have me to do. Or as Samuel said, being prodded by Eli, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That should be our attitude. So if that's the case, it makes sense. If he commands us to do things, okay, yeah, whatever you say. I got it. I'm, go I'm done. I'm, I'm good for that. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 
And what did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, why did Jesus keep his commandments? Well, because he loved the Father. He was willing to do anything for the Father. Jesus' top priority was doing the will of his Father. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Why? Because he loved the Father. John 14 says, but so the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So that's the evidence that he truly loved the Father. He did exactly as God commanded him, even to the point of going to the cross and dying and suffering a horrific death. If God appointed me to do it, so be it. I'm I'm settled. It's settled. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. We have a long way to go, don't we? (laughs) But this is the attitude of our Lord. Spring tells us that this all boils down to making the Lord our first priority. So the outgrowth of all this is that the Lord is our first priority. If we're going to do his will and do everything he says, in other words, it's God first in everything. So Spring points this out. He says, such is the, uh, I'm sorry. Such is the nature of this sublime affection. And it is important to remark that wherever it exists in the soul, it bears predominant sway. It is supreme love. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. God neither requires nor will accept a divided heart. He is a jealous God and no rival may participate in the affection due to him. So he's basically summarizing what I've said is that God has to be our first priority in life. God has to be our first priority if we love him indeed supremely. But even doing God's will has to be from the heart. Ephesians 6 says uh, in talking about slaves and doing the will of their masters, it says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but doing the will of God from the heart. So even as we do the things that we may not want to do, like Christ going to the cross, he he didn't grit his teeth and say, well, I hate doing this. No. He did plead that the Lord would remove this cup from, from me, but he wasn't gritting his teeth and hating what God had commanded. Uh, no. No, he was willingly going to the cross. And so it is as we do God's will, is that we do it willingly from the heart. So it's not just doing. It's not just fulfilling a requirement. And I've referred to this before as a checklist Christianity. No, we don't want to go through, well, I did that for God. I did my devotions. I went to church. I prayed my prayer before my meal. I uh, did my devotions with my family. Whatever you're doing. For God, we don't. It's not, we just check the list. Well, I'm done. I'm good. God is pleased with me. Now, the question is, have we done it with our heart? We want to do our uh, have daily time with God. Every Christian should be involved in that. We need to read His Word and we need to pray. It's needful. It's the lifeblood between us and God. But we can't just say our prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray. No. We 
pray with our hearts. And our hearts are engaged. And we're begging God. And we're crying to God. This is what we must do. Well, what is the source of our love to God? And this comes in, uh, this will come into play later as we talk about our need for love for God. But the source of our love to God is the triune God himself. The triune God himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the source of our love to God. To be able to love God requires a supernatural act. Because by nature, we don't love God. We don't come into this world loving God. We are dead spiritually to God. That's what the Bible describes it. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. So from a spiritual standpoint, we have no life. We're like, we're like that guy in the coffin. I've referred to that before. So in order to love God, then, God has to work. And that love has to come from him. How do we know that? Well, Deuteronomy 30 says this. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The Lord will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God. So in other words, God is going to do a work in his people And he's describing that as circumcising the heart in order that they might love God. Ezekiel describes it as giving us a new heart and a new spirit. He not only gives us new hearts to to fear him and and know him. Jeremiah 24 says, I will give them a heart to know you for you are the Lord. But also to love him. 1 John 4 says, love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So what's the source of God? God himself. Love is from God. And love results from being born again. Our new nature is no longer selfish, which is the opposite of love. But it's selfless. It's no longer about me and my things and what's good for me. That's what the society tells us to do. Whatever is good for you, that's what you need to pursue. Uh, That's not Christianity. God tells us we need to pursue the interests of others. We love our neighbor as ourselves. But then also God the Spirit is said to be the source of love for God. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Romans 5 5. And of course, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, pain, right? So the love of the, the fruit of the Spirit is love. So if we want uh, love, we have to look at the Holy Spirit, we have to wait upon Him. But then even Jesus himself is said to be a source of love. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, maybe you can turn there, 2 Corinthians. (laughs) 
In verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. For the love of Christ. Now, in the Greek, for you Greek scholars out there, love is a noun here. So it's not a verb, loving Christ. It's better uh, translated for our understanding as Christ's love. Because it's a noun, love. For Christ's love controls us. So that implies that when we love, it's Christ's love in us that's going to do it. So where do we get love? From Christ. Christ's love controls us. That we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who rose and died again on on their behalf. It says in verse 15. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's where love comes from. Now, what are the ways that a renewed heart is motivated to love God? Well, the ways are many. There are multiple ways that we can be motivated to love God, but I'll just list a few. His unerring wisdom. We admire his character. We admire his glory. His unerring wisdom. His unblemished purity. His goodness. His inflexible justice. His unlimited power. His deep, deep love. All these things, as we look upon God, we should be in awe. We should be in wonder. We should be in praise. We should admire and long for. And so we long for God himself, who is all these things. That's why the psalmist could say, I love the habitation of thy house and the place where thy glory dwells. Why does he love the habitation of God's house? Because God is there. And God has promised his special presence where two or three are gathered in his name. There I am in the midst. So if he's specially there, I want to be there because I love God. Now, I understand that we're in days of COVID. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we can't uh, press that home at this point to the nth degree. But in under normal circumstances, assuming God is our priority in life, And assuming that we're going to put him first in everything. And assuming we love him and want to be where he's going to be in a special way. How can we ever miss the gathered church? How could we ever not be there? See, so this idea is, well, I could just listen to a sermon at home on the, you know, on on video on my MP3. Well, yeah, you could. But you're going to miss out on the gathered assembly where God is specially present. In any case, this draws out from us love for him as we ponder his character. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and fortress, Psalm 18. So he loves the Lord. Why? Because of his strength. Because he's his rock and his fortress. He loves the Lord as God. So in short, we love God because of who he is not just for what, from what we get from him. We love God because of who he is, not just for what we get from him. 
While we are also motivated to love God by his love and benevolence towards us. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. So why does he love the Lord in this case specifically? Because the Lord hears my prayers. Now, many times we pray and it doesn't always turn out the way we ask, but we know God is guiding and using it for our good. That's what his main goal is, that, that we uh, be sanctified, not always to get what we want. But I tell you, and this is the tr- case of any Christian who's been in the faith a long time, they can tell you of many times, many instances where there were remarkable answers to prayer. In fact, there's an old book back from the 1800s It's called Remarkable Answers to Prayer. I think I even uh, quoted from it at one point. In any case, the Lord does hear our prayers and we love him for it. We love because he first loved us. His love and benevolence towards us. We're also motivated to love him because of the salvation and forgiveness that he has accomplished for us. And this, of course, applies to the woman that came in to the Pharisee's house, right? She loved him because of the forgiveness given to her. Well, as we wind this message down, I have several applications. First of all, we have to be prepared in changes in our affections for God. Our affections do vary, and the reason is because of sin in the world. Sometimes it's sin outside of ourselves. We get sick. You know, some, some in this assembly, Pastor Sarber and his wife, very likely have the coronavirus right now. Well, I'm sure they don't, as they're laying in bed and they got this splitting headache or something, I don't know what their symptoms are, but a lot of people have a splitting headache and, and they have the terrible chills and, and they just feel awful. Well, you know, if you think, do you have affection for God? Well, at that moment, you probably, you probably don't. I mean, that's the last thing you're thinking about is affection for anything in this world and in, in the world and in in above, you know. But there's also sin in ourselves. Sometimes our own sin will quash our love for God. When we sin and we look at things we shouldn't or we've done things that we shouldn't or we've yelled at somebody we shouldn't have yelled at or whatever it is, that'll put us a damper on love for God. Well, in any case, our affections for God do grow up and down. The one thing we shouldn't do in response to that is say, well, heart affection really isn't that big of a deal. You know, just so I'm doing my duty. Well, I hope we've covered that. Hope, hope we've gotten that message across that just doing things is not sufficient. We should do things for God, yes, but we should do it with a heart that's filled with love for him. And we should seek to accomplish that earnestly. Secondly, we should avoid the world's view of love. The world omits the need for commitment in giving ourselves to others. The world's view focuses on feeling. If I don't feel anything for my spouse, I'll get a divorce. 
That's the cry of today. Yeah, if you don't, if you know, if you if you don't love him anymore, then don't worry. You know, just get a divorce and move on to the next person. That's what we're told, and and that's the implications of what we're told, at least. If I don't feel anything for God, what's the use? I guess I'm not a Christian. That's Satan's logic. That's Satan's logic. No, we can't just give up on that. What should we do then if we lack heart affection for God? Well, we refuse to content ourselves with heartless Christianity. Heartless Christianity is Pharisaic Christianity. We should not be satisfied that we just did our devotions or went to church. Instead, we should continue to give ourselves to him in doing what he commands. That's for sure. We don't want to sin twice. We don't want to say, well, I'm not going to church because, you know, I don't have a heart for God. My affections just aren't there. So why be a hypocrite? Well, no, you're sinning twice because you're not only forsaking the assembly, sin number one, but now you don't have a heart affection for God, sin number two. So at least if you show up, you've got sin number one, and then you can take care of the heart while you're there and ask and plead with God, which is the next thing, is we plead with God. We look to God in prayer. If we lack heart affection, we cry to the Lord, and he, has the, he is the source of our affection. He will answer a prayer like that. We're not asking for gold and silver and fame and fortune. We're asking for love for him. Surely he'll answer that prayer. And then fourthly, we can meditate on God's word and read God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If that's true for faith, I would propose that that's going to be true for love for him as well. So the scriptures are a key. To meditate on him, we get to see his attributes. We get to see more closely and be reminded of just who he is and have a right view of who God is. And by meditating on his word, we can find motivation to love, for, to love God. Well, the fourth application is that the evidence of true Christianity, and we don't want to miss this because this is the whole theme of the message, the evidence of true Christianity is love to God. First Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So note the link between faith and love. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. And then he describes the salvation of our souls. So there is a link between faith and love. And what it is, is that faith is what saves us. It's the means God uses to bring us to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Love is then the fruit of that faith that we have towards God. It's the necessary conclusion of one who has put his trust and faith in the Lord. We can't love God if we don't savingly believe on him. Because once we have a saving faith, at the same time, when God regenerates us, 
and brings us to Christ, he will give a love for himself to us. So that's a promise. Now, what if we've never had a heart for God and we've never loved him? What if that's true? Well, again, we need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. We need to repent of our sins and turn away from our life of life without God. And we need to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we do, we'll find that we will have a heart to love him. But I must add that if we love him supremely, we'll be giving ourselves to him in his kingdom. Because we'll love him. If we indeed love him supremely, we'll be giving ourselves to him and his kingdom as the highest priority of our lives. This is true Christianity. Well, there's much more we could say. But we need to pray that God would give us hearts that are filled with a love for him so that in everything that we do, both at home, here in worship, that our life would be characterized by a love for God, a heart that beats for the Lord in heaven. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we must confess that we are often lacking in our affection and love for you. And we have failed to do things for you when we could have done things. But we haven't because we still have the remaining sin within us that would uh, cause us to focus more on ourselves than on, on your kingdom. And so we need your help. We need you first to forgive our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood covering us. And we also need that love for God that only you can give. And we pray that you would give it to us abundantly. And that we would have our hearts filled with a love for the Savior. And that everything we do would be colored by that love. We pray, O oh Lord, for uh, any who might not know you that are in our midst, any of our children or whoever it is listening on the video. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give them a heart for Christ. Give them faith to believe. Grant them repentance unto life. And pray that you would then provide love for them, love for you in them, and that you would be glorified and honored in the saving of sinners. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.